Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. I see dead people. Today we are discussing The Sixth Sense. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan. Uh, This is the one... Finally, we actually get into what I guess most people would consider the actual Shyamalan movies. The last two were definitely from him, but these are the ones from here on out where he that people know him most from. And don't forget, I do have the review up for Stuart Little. We took a road trip during spring break, so I'm like, hey, I'll watch Stuart Little. And for those of you who are wondering, what does Stuart Little have to do with M. Night Shyamalan? Well, he wrote the film, so... I thought we weren't going to cover it in the podcast because he did co-wrote it technically, so it's really not his film. But just for fun, I included that in his oeuvre of work, so we do have that review. And it does it did make sense because in 98, Wide Awake was a quasi-family film, you could say, and um, Stuart Little came out that year as well. But yeah, I'm really glad we're finally getting to the real deal Shyamalan stuff because nobody... Honestly, nobody really knows about Praying with Anger, I would say. Very few. Right. And then Wide Awake, I didn't even know about that before we decided to do the retrospective series. So, But The Sixth Sense, people consider this to be like Shyamalan's first film. It's really not. It's kind of his third, almost kind of his fourth. But nevertheless, right. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, and for many people, this is probably the one that they would consider to be his magnum opus. Mm-hmm. One of <laughs> the best, if not his best movie that he's ever made. Um, and we'll talk about if we still feel, if we feel that is justified or not, but yeah, this is the one finally after three movies, he's made one that I guess this would be the one that really put him on the map. Uh, he did get with a pretty big, uh, company, a pretty, pretty big production company for this one compared to at least to his last two. So yeah, this was the one this, and then unbreakable the year after, and then kind of continued to make movies, uh, for in the next whoever knows how long. Uh, now, of those who do know Shyamalan's track record, you know that there has been a pretty giant dip that's come into his quality uh, in the last few years and might be coming out of it, maybe? We'll see what happens when we get to those reviews, though. That will be really interesting to chronicle the life and times of M. Night Shyamalan because, yeah, he really exploded onto the scene. He was, an un- honestly, an unknown director when oh, The yeah. Sixth Sense came out, and it was huge. I mean, I can't even... I'm going to do my best to relate to you listeners. We're going to travel back to 1999 and try and relate to you best how big this movie was for the year. And I think you're going to be shocked to really put it into perspective and realize how truly much of a phenomenon this was. And even still, it lives in our cultural zeitgeist. I would say not as much anymore, but the line that I quoted to you at the beginning, everybody knows that line, I would say. Oh, yeah. It's one of those lines that, uh, just yeah, once again, everybody knows this line. Like the, Luke, I am your father, or I see dead people. One of those movie lines that everybody knows, and they all know it came from The Sixth Sense. And The Mm -hmm. Sixth Sense is also really well known for its very big twist at the end, which we'll, we'll, of course, we'll get to. But yeah, that's... And really from here on out, twists with M. Night Shyamalan become pretty much the director staple of almost all, if not every single work that he has from here on out. 
Now, of course, I didn't come to this movie in 1999 because I would have been roughly four years old. Alan would have been (laughs) roughly around the same age. But I do believe I rented this movie. I don't even know why. I think I was just hearing about it. I think I, I rented it around the age of 12. I'm not sure. But I remember my sister was gone with a friend and she's younger than me so we weren't gonna watch it with her but i went to it with my mom and dad and i remember us we had just finished eating dinner we popped on the movie and i remember the opening disturbed me so much we just had to shut it off and i'm like oh my gosh what is this movie it's so upsetting so don't watch it with your younger kids listeners uh you gotta wait i mean that pg-13 is it's it's one of the harder pg-13s with some of the subject matters it deals with oh yeah yeah and what's funny is for me i forget how i found out this twist but i knew the twist before i actually watched this movie i may have seen it on some youtube video on some top 10 list or whatever who knows but I remember an ex-girlfriend was showing it to me one time, and I was like, wait a minute. I <laughs> Wait a minute. And I and I told her, like, is this the twist? And he goes, so just watch. And then at the end, I was like, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> so is that, in some ways, it was actually kind of cool seeing the way this movie is edited to also kind of fit that twist. Yeah. But at the same time, I never came in with a clear mind and did not and got to experience that for the first time i did however get to see my cousin's reaction when he when i showed it to him uh a while back and he it blew his mind with what happened mm. but yeah i myself did not get to experience the twist that is this that is this movie that is one of the biggest reasons why people remember it so much i wish i could remember my reactions to big twists in films more i just don't remember my reactions so maybe when i have kids and i get to experience these twists with them all over again maybe i'll have forgotten them all be so old by that time who knows but i'm gonna figure out a way to secretly record them and get their reactions so then they can remember and i can remember because i don't remember but nevertheless alan did you realize this movie was actually originally owned by disney no, I guess I didn't know that. Really. <laughs> Can you imagine Disney's The Sixth Sense? <laughs> yeah, it would not be nearly as uh spooky as this one as this version is, I'm afraid, if Disney really had all the rights to it. No, Disney can't really produce a spooky movie cuz they got in trouble with the Black Cauldron. Yeah. The, the closest one that I guess that they've come to really is uh Haunted Mansion, which was yeah. more of a comedy than it was a spooky movie so they did i guess the closest one that i could think of to actually an actual horror movie per se there's another one that um you should look into listeners and and you should too alan i watched it for the first time it's an older one called um watcher in the woods okay it has a number of quite creepy elements and some decent editing and it's it kind of has a bit of a foreign film feel to it um as for whether that movie works well, I'll leave that up to you. But regardless, there was this man named David Vogel who was president of production at Walt Disney Studios. He loved the script and he bought it for $3 million. But Disney was like, hey, what the heck? You can't do this. And we kind of wanted you gone anyway, so you're fired. And we're just going to sell the oh. script to Spyglass Entertainment. But Disney still maintained distribution rights and 12.5% of the box office, which is kind of hmm. sneaky, but was quite smart because... 
I'm just going to go ahead and say it. This would be the second highest grossing film of 1999, only behind The Phantom Menace. Yeah, and I mean, that does make sense because, yes, that was the return of Star Wars that he had to go up against in terms of competing in the box office for the number one movie of the year. So, yeah, no wonder it came in second place. I'm sure if it came out the year after, it would have been in first place, but the year after it went to Unbreakable, so, eh. But, yeah, that makes total sense that, which is still impressive, though, don't get me wrong, still very impressive that a pretty much first-time director, at least in this kind of a, a sense, um, gets this number of box office uh, revenue. Still very impressive. He had some big producers behind him making this movie, which I'm sure really helped. If you'll notice, mm -hmm. Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, yep. who are no lightweights, easily probably the biggest producers of our time. They always work closely with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. They produced all of the Indiana Jones films, yep. the Star Wars films, and like Kathleen Kennedy is like in charge of Lucasfilm now or something. Right, yeah, she. There, I know that there was some controversy with her that came up last after the last uh, Star Wars movie, but yeah, she's definitely one of the most well-known names in terms of pro a producer role uh, in these films from the American style, like yeah, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, things like that. Well, and it should be noted that for the year two thousand, thanks to a massive six-month online marketing campaign, I can't imagine having to wait six months to get. A movie from the time it Oof. it hit theaters. That's eh, yeah. It's usually not the case now, but it was the highest selling DVD of two thousand. So that's pretty cool. That makes sense. Yeah, I can see it. And of course, AFI awarded this movie the most memorable and repeated quotes of "I see dead people." It's in the forty fourth yeah. most memorable quote. And according to AFI, it's the sixtieth sixtieth most thrilling film of all time. Interesting. Now, of course, like I said, this movie was a big success, and it had a budget of $40 million. It had a massive domestic gross of $293 million, internationally $379 million, for a worldwide total of $672.8 million, and it was the highest grossing horror film up until only two years ago when it was dethroned by the remake of It. Well, that does make sense. Um, but yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Considering, uh, just I guess, considering the circumstances that we have with this director and a pretty much a first time director with this big of a, with this big of a movie and on a, and, uh, with a subject matter that is relatively new to the audience, to the, I guess, the bigger audience here in America and around the world. Very Clearly. impressive once again. Yeah, and clearly Shyamalan was a safe bet because, yeah. I mean, it's really surprising. I mean, clearly, I think his previous two films were, like, decently well made, but they didn't earn anything. There was no profit return on those. Right. So right. giving him a $40 million budget, which was bigger than anything he'd worked with, but clearly he, like, Ginza triple tupled it, whatever. I mean, with yeah. over <laughs> close to 700 million for the worldwide box office. And adjusting for inflation, this is Shyamalan's highest grossing film. And I should note, listeners, Shyamalan is a billion dollar director, meaning his films combined have grossed over one billion dollars in the domestic box office. That's a, that's a, that's a lot of money. Yeah. 
And I should note, it did come in at number one at the box office opening weekend, and it would actually stay number one for five weeks, and it didn't drop out of the top five until after nine weeks. That's, yeah, once again, still very impressive. So for opening weekend, it went up against The Thomas Crown Affair, Mystery Men, which I actually watched not that long ago. It stars Ben Stiller and uh, William H. Macy, some other people. Um, most notably, the, song, the Smash Mouth song, All Star, makes its appearance in that film. Ah, yes. That's become kind of a meme, and then it kind of died out recently. Mm-hmm. And also, it went up against the Iron Giant, Warner Brothers film, which I would say is much more beloved now than it was, was back then, because back then it came in at number yeah. nine at the box office. Yeah, that's yeah, that one's very much a cult following, has a more of a cult following now. I remember one time Cartoon Network actually played that movie back to back all day. Ooh. I watched it. That was when I got tired of the movie when I was a kid, because I think I watched it like three or four times right in a row. I'm just like, I don't want to watch this movie oh, anymore. Oh, gosh. So, That's funny. I've only seen pieces since then. But from what I understand, it's, yeah, very much a very beloved movie after many years after it came out. So for the top five for that year in August 6, 1999, Sixth Sense was number one, of course. The Blair Witch Project was second, which makes sense. They hmm. kind of have a bit of a similar, you know, flavor to them, subject matter yeah. in a way. Uh, Runaway Bride was third. Enjoy that movie. The Thomas Crown Affair in Deep Blue Sea. Ah, uh, I've seen Deep Blue Sea. Isn't that that shark movie? What? That's such a silly movie. Yes, it's about a shark that gets, I guess, cut loose in this giant like yeah. Sea World Aquarium like thing research lab. It's got Samuel Jackson in it and Ooh. it's got a pretty cool scene where he dies. He gets his arm bitten I'm, off. Okay, I'm gonna have with to some it. really amazing CGI. <laughs> well, audiences at the time did really enjoy it, but not as much as I was expecting considering kind of the impact. It it got an A minus, yeah. which is nothing to snub your nose at, but I was expecting at least oh, yeah. an A. Possibly an A+, plus, but nevertheless, an A- minus is still great. I'm just a little surprised. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When we talked about this before, the the ratings for CinemaScore are weird. It seems to be good if it's like, what, above, I think I said above like a B plus mm-hmm. or above. It seems to be good in the public side. Anything below that is either mediocre or not great. Yeah. Uh, it's just how it kind of works out with CinemaScore, I suppose. So, yeah, A- minus is still very good. Mm-hmm. Critics gave it an 86% fresh, and it's a 90% audience approval on Rotten Tomatoes. Pretty impressive numbers. And on IMDb, it has come to reside at an 8.1, and it is considered the 162nd greatest film of all time, according to IMDb users. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's definitely got a lot of accolades, I would say. A lot of people tend, a lot of people really, really enjoy this movie, and some, I'm sure, find it to be uh, one that I'm pretty sure that they grew up with. Maybe because of the twist and changed their lives for cinema or whatever. You know, yeah, this movie is very beloved, at least from, uh, I guess, the American side of things. Oh, and uh, did I forget to mention it uh, went to the Academy Awards that year? Got nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Once again, very impressive. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, because considering the last movie that M. Not Shyamalan made, which I know you and I kind of just dogged on the whole time, <laughs> uh, now he's going from more Razzie worthy awards to being six nominations at the Oscars. Pretty big turnaround, I would say. Yeah, Best Picture, 
Haley Joel Osment got nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Best Actress, uh, Tony Collette. Shyamalan was nominated for Best Director and nominated for Best Original Screenplay, and the film was nominated for Best Film Editing. Um, I guess if we're going to start giving out Oscars to Colette and Osment, then I'm a little surprised Bruce Willis isn't in there as well. That seems a little weird. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't win any Oscars. A huge snub. Yeah, that is, that is surprising that it didn't get anything at the Oscars. I wonder what else was going up against it that year. I don't remember. You can look. I don't I remember. Look it up. Oh, look. Here it is. Uh, I guess we have American Beauty... The Insider, Talented Miss Ripley, Magnolia, The Green Mile, Music of the Heart. So, I mean, there's still some really good competition here. Yeah, Being John Malkovich are all movies that were nominated for something mm. this year. So, I guess I can see why I probably didn't get anything. But still, even having a nomination is a really big deal. Well, and just to explore this just a little bit further, um, Haley Joel Osment was very young. To oh, be yeah. nominated. Um, the only yeah. other person that I know of that won that was even younger than this was, oh, I'm blanking on her name. She plays Rogue in the X-Men movies. She's also, um, she was in the, the piano. She was really young. She did a fantastic job yeah. in that film. She did win the Oscar that year, which is pretty cool. Right. Um, also, Tony Collette is in this movie. I didn't even remember that at all because when I saw Hereditary last year, I'm like, "Who's this? I've never heard of this actress. She must be kind of a kind of right. new here on the scene." Um, no, Oscar-nominated actress, and um, she's not above being in garbage movies though because she was in Triple X: um, The Return of Xander Cage in an awful role. Right. Uh, but Haley Joel Osment was a really in-demand young actor for the time. He just boom, 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 one year after another. He was in this, and then he would go on to be in Steven Spielberg's AI, Artificial Intelligence. Apparently he was in Kingdom Hearts. What? Yeah, he played the, he was the voice of Sora. Oh. You know, the main mm -hmm. character. Oh, duh. <laughs> at, least the at least the English version. Okay. Oh, yeah, Secondhand Lions. Eh. Using that one too. We were, we did talk about him. Yes, so a few weeks ago. Yes, so Haley Joel Osment was a very in demand actor at the time. He was in The Sixth Sense in 1999, which got him the Oscar nomination. Then he would go on to be in Spielberg, Steven Spielberg's AI Artificial Intelligence in 2001. Well, the year before that, he was in Pay It Forward with Kevin Spacey, who had recently got the Oscar for American Beauty. And then he right. was in um, Secondhand Lions, which we have reviewed. I love that movie. That was my yep. birthday pick in 2003. And as far as I can tell, his career was just really isolated to the early 2000s. Yeah, it seems like in the 90s into the early 2000s is really where mo I guess people mostly remember mm -hmm. him from. He's still around here and there, but you don't see him very much at all like he used to back in the early or late 90s, early 2000s with all these movies that he was being a part of. Because that's usually how people remember him, is just kind of this, this really good babyface actor. Uh, <laughs> and now he's... Hey, I don't know if he's done too much, or people are just not offering him roles anymore. You know, who really knows? But, yeah, isn't as popular as he used to be. And, well, you know, we can't help but think of... This was really 
incredible for a young director to do this. And then the only other director that I can remember recently was Damien Chazelle, who would get, right. I believe, Whiplash got four or six Oscar nominations, and then La La Land would go on to be uh, record-breaking with 14 nominations, and then, of course, First Man with a couple as well. So right. that, you know, Damien Chazelle has been incredibly successful, and this is a good start for Shyamalan so I'm really intrigued to see where Shyamalan's career goes from here and how exciting yeah. would that be to be in 99 to see the sixth sense just just to be kind of like in awe of it and then it'd be just massively successful the biggest movie talked about of the year and right which has maintained a better reputation than the Phantom Menace I might add <laughs> yeah that was an interesting movie because when it first came out people were like oh my gosh just the best Star Wars movie ever and then people slowly begin to realize Oh, wait, it's not that good. Well, and then also, I guess, in the vein of horror, this is very reminiscent of Jordan Peele, how with his very first film, Get Out, got four or five nominations, yep. and it, he won the Oscar for writing, at least. And it yep. always is exciting to see a first-time director do that, and then it makes you incredibly excited there for their career. So I would have been really oh, yeah. excited to see where Shyamalan went. I know where he went, but not fully because we still have yet to explore his films, I just hope right. that doesn't happen right. to Jordan Peele, though, where they kind of just fall off, or Damien Chazelle, where just they were kind of this hit wonder and then they're gone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, Chaman uh, had a really, a really good first few movies and then began to slowly kind of fall off. Uh, so they, I think Chazelle only has three. No, he has four, technically speaking, um, because of Guy and Madeline, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And Jordan Peele has two, so. Mm, we haven't seen their fall off just yet. If that's ever going to come, <laughs> yep, there is kind of a cutoff line that many consider with Shyamalan, <laughs> where yeah, there's a noticeable just plummet. Uh, oh yeah, but we'll yeah. talk about that. Where I'm not making any judgments yet. I have not seen all of his films, so uh, just because other people don't like them doesn't mean that I won't. Right. Well, listeners, we are about to get into spoiler territory. Um, before we do, two little last tidbits of trivia. While you watch this movie, look for the color red. It is used sparingly and on purpose. Also, yes. uh, Marissa Tomei was considered for the role of Lynn Sear, um, Cole's mom. So, kind of interesting. Hmm. <laughs> like I said, listeners, we're about to spoil The Sixth Sense. So if you have not seen The Sixth Sense and you do want to watch it, it is on Netflix right now. That is probably the most accessible way to watch it or just get it from your library or rental store. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's been Netflix forever. I can't remember the time when it actually wasn't on Netflix. That is true. To be honest That's with true. You. So go ahead and watch the movie. Come back and click play and we will be ready to talk about The Sixth Sense. Dr. Malcolm Crow, played by Bruce Willis, is a renowned children's psychologist in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In fact, he was given a major award for his work, so naturally him and his wife Anna, played by Olivia Williams, decided to celebrate with a night in filled with a little romance. Except their romantic evening is disturbingly cut short by a man stripped down to his underwear and crying in their bathroom. This man begins accusing Malcolm and berating him for his lack of curing his disorders. Eventually, Malcolm realizes this man to be grown-up Vincent Gray, played by... Donnie Wahlberg? 
Mm. I did not realize that was Mark Wahlberg's brother. I guess it is kind of hard when he's really, really young, but... Well, it threw me for a loop when I checked on IMDb. I I did not know. I guess... I guess I didn't realize that there were any more Wahlbergs in the acting industry. Yes, Donnie Wahlberg hmm. still does quite a bit of acting, just mostly television. And uh, he has been in some uh, movies, okay. most notably Saw 2, from what I remember, but he's been in other stuff. Okay. Well, it's grown up Vincent Gray. He was a patient of his many years ago, seeking to relieve his pain and cause some for Malcolm. He shoots himself. Well, that nope, that you can't shoot yourself and then somebody else. Let me rephrase that. Seeking to relieve his pain and cause some for Malcolm, he shoots him and then himself. A year later, Malcolm has seemingly made a full recovery, and he has a new patient named Cole Sear, played by Haley Joel Osment. Cole is nine, comes from a divorced household, and is an outcast, and his behavior often disturbs his mother, played by Tony Collette, and teachers at school. Through a number of sessions, Malcolm and Cole form a bond and Cole begins to open up to Malcolm about his problems. The audience, on the other hand, sees Cole's problems play out firsthand, as Cole encounters menacing apparitions which seemingly seek to harm him, and bullies at school put him in frightening situations which cause Cole to black out. At the hospital, the dark secret everyone deemed the young boy to be crazy for is revealed. Cole sees dead people. Feeling the case is too much to handle, and Malcolm's wife ever slipping from his grasp and into another man's, he decides to drop Cole as a patient. While in his study, Malcolm comes across the old Vincent Gray tapes, except this time he stumbles upon a startling revelation. While in his study, Malcolm comes across the old Vincent Gray tapes, except this time he stumbles upon a startling revelation. After Malcolm left the room, leaving Vincent alone, a man's voice begins to speak to Vincent, giving Malcolm to realize Cole and Vincent had the same ability, but he doesn't want to fail Cole like he did Vincent. Reconnecting with the boy, he encourages Cole to simply see what the apparitions want. One night, Cole is visited by an uncontrollably vomiting girl who leads Malcolm and Cole to her funeral gathering at her house, where Cole is given the dark secret. It was the young girl's mother who purposely poisoned her to death. Cole and Malcolm now realize this is a gift, not a curse. Cole can relieve souls who have unfinished business in this world, just like Dr. Malcolm Crow. Without Malcolm's help, Cole would have never realized his gift, and without Cole's gift, he would have never been able to speak with Malcolm, who in fact has been dead the whole time. See, Malcolm never recovered that year ago when he was shot by Vincent Gray. He died. His spirit remained on this earth in order to help Cole and help himself make up for failing Vincent. Upon discovering this truth, Cole is able to convince his mom of his gift, providing their reconciliation, and Malcolm is able to let his wife Anna go and leave this world fulfilled as credits roll. So, yeah. Uh, once again, this movie is kind of just known for its twists, and this twist here is, hey, he's been dead the whole time, and... There are times when a lot when movies will pull the it's all a dream kind of a thing yeah. and it totally doesn't work <laughs> and it's just there because A, they didn't know how to wrap it up or uh, B, it may have just been a straight up lazy script to begin with. But this is one of the few times that a movie has a twist and then 
builds the rest of the movie around that twist. And it's really shown more of through how scenes are written out after the opening scene, where when Malcolm goes to talk with his wife and dinner, he just kind of walks up and sits down and starts talking to her. And then she never puts, and she never really pays any attention to him. And then just walks off, says, happy anniversary. Now you can imagine that watching it as if Malcolm was never there. And the scene still plays out in a little bit of a different way because Malcolm the character of Malcolm isn't present, but it still makes a lot of sense because he is having really no physical contact with the world around him. Uh, it's just him as an apparition or kind of like a ghost, a soul kind of walking around trying to reconnect without knowing that he's dead. It's very interesting how this movie is edited and written to fit this twist at the end. Rewatching it also really shows how much care was put into how these scenes play out in order to in order to feed this twist at the very end. I did think about that while watching this movie because I had seen this movie at least once before. So I knew the twist, but I was trying to determine whether the twist works because it could easily not work. It could easily very well fall yeah. apart save for one line that Cole explains towards the end when he says these ghosts, whatever you want to call them, they only see what they want to see. And that makes a lot of sense because otherwise one of the scenes that I think would completely crash the whole twist is when Cole comes from home from school and uh, his mom and Malcolm are sitting together quietly in the living room. Now I'm thinking, right. A, how did Malcolm get into the house? Because she, they would have had to have interacted and why does she not acknowledge him? So that easily could have derailed the whole thing, but Malcolm is possibly, because all the other ghosts just kind of appear, so he seemingly can just not, he, he can like interact physically with things, at least that's what he perceives, but also I'm assuming he could right. just come into places and be in situations and think and probably fill in the details of how he got there. So that does make right. it work. Yeah, and pretty much yeah, pretty much every scene that's in this movie, aside from maybe a couple, have Malcolm in it, and he's doing something. Really, really, the only times when he's not in scenes is there towards the end, with uh, where it's just uh, Cole kind of doing with those apparitions that he sees. But yeah, it pretty much everything that you see in this movie has some kind of purpose, and also kind of lends to the twist that we do get to towards the end. It is also interesting to note that uh, every time that Malcolm sits down like on a chair or something like that. The furniture never really moves. He kind of just walks around it and then sits on the chair. Like in the time mm -hmm. when uh, when Cole is in like the study after he kind of yells at the teacher, Malcolm comes in and kind of goes around the chair and sits down, not really pulls it out and then sits down in it. He does that pretty much every time. They're really the only time I think that he ever really interacts with a, a I guess, an object. I guess there are two times. One is a window. But there's one time when he's in the hospital and he kind of scoots the stool around a little bit. Other than that, every time he uses the, every time he really interacts with something, uh, he never really messes with it, I guess you could say. It's always very stationary. Now, during the opening credits, we're presented with two big names that I did not want to fail to mention who I think without them, this film probably wouldn't have been as good as it was. And that is the cinematographer Tak Fujimoto, who uh, uh, yes. shot a little film uh, called The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, who knows that movie? Who's ever heard of that uh, all-time Oscar-winning movie? 
<laughs> uh, did, did a little movie called Silence of the Lambs. Also, Tak Fujimoto has done a ton of other films. Hugely famous cinematographer. And also, James Newton Howard composed the score for this ah. film. Who I yes. am pretty sure he's done all like almost all of Shyamalan's other films. Uh, he also did a little uh, film called Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. Pretty recognizable scores, yep. I would say. Also, I mean, yep. he, he's just done anything like you can think of: Hidalgo, King Kong, Collateral, yep. Blood Diamond, uh, I Am Legend, Charlie Wilson's War, Michael Clayton, yep. just everything almost. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's a. He's a great composer, and he does work with uh, Hans Zimmer quite a bit. That's where him he worked with Hans Zimmer on the Dark Knight trilogy, at least the first two. I don't know if he worked on him with Rises, but yeah, him and Hans Zimmer, I'm sure, have done other like partner jobs for composing music. I know Hans Zimmer does do a lot of partner jobs with the other composers, but yeah, James Newton Howard and the cinematographer we have here both are one of two of the biggest things that really make this film work, and in, in my mind, and how. Because this movie looks really, really good, mm-hmm. and it's shot really, really well. Yes. And the music, again, is really good, and it's utilized really, really well. So yeah, without these two bigger elements to the story, we could have a very mediocre-looking movie with a great twist on our <laughs> hands, but that's not how this works. No, so Shyamalan better count himself lucky. He's got like all the big <laughs> guns behind him for oh, this yeah. project. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, like you said, the cinematography and score work incredibly well because they are consistent throughout the whole movie especially consistent with creating this atmosphere where it feels like you can sit back in your seat and watch the movie but you're never quite comfortable you're never quite going to let your guard down yeah there's something very somber about these kind of cloudy uh philadelphia days and something quite unsettling when certain elements play in and the score does a fantastic job of evoking those emotions. Oh yeah. Yeah. And especially what's interesting too, is that I would maybe make the argument that the traditional horror element that we see in this movie doesn't really happen until about the second half. And that's not until after we hear the line, I see dead people. Once we hear that line, then we start actually seeing those apparitions. But anytime before that, we get hints of them, but never actually see people walking around like Cole does, which is very interesting to me that we make that decision not to show these, I guess, souls kind of trapped in purgatory, holding on to something uh, until by, I think I think it is actually the second half or maybe a little bit past that. But yeah, still. It, it is a great choice to keep us in suspense as to the condition yep. of this young man. Because initially we see scratches on his arm, which I thought were cuts. I thought he was a nine-year-old cutting himself, which I thought, yikes, this movie is just going to keep going as darker and darker as it can go oh, with yeah. everything. But Oh, yeah. And I'm sure that that, I'm sure that's what he was going mm-hmm. for, too, is a kind of, oh, crap, is is that what we're going with this? Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, This is a really sad movie, honestly. Oh, yeah. There is a lot of depressing material that we talk about in this movie, like, a lot of child depression because of social, because of being socially outcast, yeah. uh, and suicide, things like that. Pretty heavy topics. Now they're not like they're not like heavily detailed in this mm-hmm. movie, but they are definitely mentioned, and they're kind of hard to miss. So yeah, it does kind of push that PG thirteen rating a bit. Oh, yeah, uh, I mean, just with the subject material alone. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's 
very surprising, honestly, with some of the elements it goes into because of how dark this movie yeah. gets. And the tone is set right off the bat with the opening of the film. His wife is creeped out in the basement, which gives us the creeps. Who likes a dark basement? Nobody. Right. And uh, But there still is um, – Shyamalan, I think, even from his previous films, maybe not so much Praying with Anger, but Wide Awake, did have some really great dialogue that was written mm-hmm. – um, I th- or I'm sorry. Yeah. Praying with Anger, I didn't really think as good. But Wide Awake had some funny dialogue as well. It was able to mix in humor. And like there is some yeah. humor where Malcolm is talking about there. She's like, where should we hang it? And he's like, for his plaque, his award, he's like, we should put it in the bathroom. And I'm like, there's yeah. that Shyamalan wit. I like that. But we do kind of build up to this scene. Like I said, you just you should feel safe in the home. But you just got this feeling that something's off. And yeah. I will say my heart pace was quickening because I knew what was coming. And I got to say, this is one of the most frightening opening scenes in cinema. It is so disturbing with this guy crying half naked in the bathroom. And he's deranged and he's possibly going to murder them. You don't know what's going to happen. It. I just, I just will never forget when I first saw that. Oh, I was so yeah. upset. I was so disturbed. And I remember when I first watched this, I was like, what What point does this have with the movie? It just kind of feels weird to have this scene with this kid that Malcolm used to, uh, used to I guess, work with back mm-hmm. in the day. Out of nowhere, and when I first watched the movie, I was like, that doesn't make any <laughs> sense. And it isn't until when I, on this viewing that I realized that, oh, wait, no, he's like the whole reason why this movie exists because Cole has... Real, pretty much the exact same condition, not only with how, what kind of things is going on in his mind, but at the same time, his whole family situation, a divorced kid living alone, living alone with one mm-hmm. parent, being socially outcast, they're parallels. And so what this movie really is, is at least for uh, Malcolm here, is a redemption story. Can he redeem himself by saving this kid that has pretty much the same condition as the kid that he let down like about a year ago when he's, when we show him again back in the next fall? And it also does a good job of establishing questioning Malcolm's true nature or his motives, whether Mm -hmm. he really is a hero, because he was awarded by the city with this big plaque. I mean, he is extremely well regarded. But then that same night to have one of his patients say, you failed me in the most horrible way and my life is over. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill you, too. It's a really dramatically intense scene, and it does call into question our kind of trust of Malcolm for the rest of the movie, especially when he does eventually cut ties with Cole. And right. you're like, what the heck? And uh, Haley Joel Osment plays that scene so well. I mean, he does oh, so yeah. well in this film with his emotions. Yeah. And it, it's also interesting, too, because when the year passes, you see him sitting on this bench right outside of Cole's house, I guess, apartment or house. Mm-hmm. And he's looking over the Vincent Gray file. And then when the door opens, he moves the paper over. And he's, he's he's also looking at Cole's file as well, which are very similar. Uh, the movie even kind of points this out in how what when it displays, you know, a divorced parent, nine years old. They happen nine years after one another, I think, because uh, Mal- no, the other kids happened in like eighty nine, and now we're in nineteen ninety eight. So yeah, he's also it's also showing here that hey, these cases are very very much very similar. They're pretty much a parallel case uh, with these two kids. 
And I think the story does a great job of playing with the sense of time. Yeah. Because to me, the story almost feels out of time, which I think is good. It does. Because Malcolm is more or less out of time now. Because he died and then we just jumped to a year later all of a sudden but he's still alive but he's really not in this world but like i was saying like you well like you were saying the two files cole and vincent are almost identical with Mm -hmm. everything going on with them so it's almost like cole could have been this guy grown up and you'll even notice they have the same they even have some silver flecks in their hair and but it's still a year later so it really does kind of mess with me a little bit thinking oh yeah okay did we just see a did we just see a flashback or is this a flash forward or it's that that does work really well actually oh yeah yeah they Shyamalan's use of the timeline he kind of just messed it's it's hard to really define where this movie takes place in time and where certain scenes take place in the movie's timeline that's done on purpose uh, he is very much messing with how with our sense of time with this. It's kind of like you were saying, kind of as if it was almost timeless with how it presents things in this movie. I think that that's a very interesting way of going about telling the story and how each scene kind of feels like it's somewhere in time, but where exactly is kind of hard to define because it feels like it goes, this movie tracks around, oh, I don't know, a full season maybe even a year of kind of just like this therapy session that we have with this kid. But at the same time, when you get to the end of the movie, maybe it's not as long as it kind of felt that it was supposed to be. Maybe it's maybe only a few days or maybe like a month if you want to stretch it. It's, yeah, this time, the timeline of this movie is very weird. And it's there's a very good job at kind of crafting this both this horror and this mystery aspect to it as to not only where are we, but when are we, and how and how this also kind of ties with that you know Malcolm's actually dead there at the very end. One of the small, possibly dead giveaways as to the twist of this film that I did notice is Cole's last name is Seer, Seer, which is something more of an ancient term for somebody that can look into the spirit realm and see events of the past or future or connect with um spirits or ghosts that's what a seer is yeah so by giving him that last name which i'm sure is a last name and still works it eh, i don't know i think Shyamalan's playing with that a little too much trying to be a little too on the nose with that naming i would say that there are plenty of dead giveaways for how the twist really it resolves itself there at the end but there are some of those things where they're subtle enough they're subtle enough where you don't really pick up on it the first time the probably the biggest dead giveaway in my mind before they actually get to the twist is it is with the line i see dead people the camera work alone kind of just gives it away that our main character here is actually dead because when he says i see dead people there's a i believe it's a uh tracking towards malcolm when he says that it's a pretty much a dead giveaway and that's like 20 minutes or no, it's about 45 minutes or so before we actually find out that, oh yeah, Malcolm actually is dead the whole time. Uh, there are plenty of dead giveaways looking at it a second time, I would say. The first time, it's kind of like, huh? That's kind of strange. And I think the but more... Then it kind of, once you, I would say once I, once I watched it, once I, when I saw it, because I already knew the twist, I was like, 
Oh, well, of course. And I think to more audience members, they would, if not fully buy into that theory, they would at least begin to suppose that is where the film is yeah. leading. But And the filmmakers were worried about that, that exact scene you just brought up, where it does cut to Malcolm right after he says it. And they're like, that's just going to give away the whole twist. And when it does happen, people are like, well, yeah, I, I know, because you'd already, we already revealed it. But they thought it right. was ambiguous enough because it, the, the focus quickly shifts away from Malcolm and then it begins to focus like directly on his apparitions, whatever he sees. Um, right. So, yes, that was a contentious point that they were worried about leaving in, but ultimately it did. And I would say, yeah, for the first time, most people won't pick up on it. The more astute viewers might, but then on the second viewing, that is more possible. Yeah, and I would say that the scenes when Malcolm is trying to interact with his wife are probably the scenes that kind of help lay over this twist that does mm. eventually come yes. to reveal itself because they are shot in a way where you could take it both ways. Either she's just kind of like, okay, the dinner scene I mentioned earlier, when he goes to meet her for the restaurant that he's totally late for, uh, the scene plays out as if Maybe she's listening to him. Maybe she's just kind of actively ignoring him because it's their anniversary and this was like, you know, one of the last straws or whatever. Uh, something like that. There are, they do know that their marriage is falling apart at this point. So I would say that maybe these scenes, especially with his wife, mo that's mostly where the masking comes in. They do kind of help hide this cup. They put over this cover that, no, there's no way he could be dead because he was talking with his wife. But in reality, he really wasn't because the scenes are kind of laid out in a way where they look as if he's doing something. But in reality, he's not really communicating with her at all. She's on her own. And so she acts on her own, even though Malcolm is technically there as like a spirit of apparition. Yes, there are a lot of well done red herrings in this film. And it was a smart choice to have Malcolm, who is a ghost or whatever, be in scenes with real living people that we have no question that they are alive. And that does help because we do see him get shot, and but then we see him, he's perfectly fine, and he's interacting with so many different people. The only person he does, we actually see him interact with, which, like I said, maybe if you're more of an astute viewer, you might start to question it. The only person he ever talks to in this movie aside from the very beginning he only talks to two people in this movie as far as i as far as i know anna his wife in the beginning then he shot and then he only talks with cole otherwise he's just in scenes with other people and right. acts like he's a part yeah. of the conversation right yeah and especially that scene where you brought up earlier when he's with when he when cole walks in and his mom and malcolm are sitting there yeah there are scenes where he's it looks as if something had transpired yes. before that and maybe there was but he never really interacted with them the only other time that he actually interacted with anybody other than cole is his wife and that's when she's sleeping when she gets the idea of doing that when cole tells him hey try talking with her when she's sleeping which also comes with the redemption arc of him and his wife because we have had that marriage falling apart kind of thing which is, i guess it kind of is it's kind of strange to say that because he's totally dead uh, but it still works out that he's able to, I guess, tell her one last time that I love you, uh, before he does eventually go away. Uh, it's, it's very interesting how this movie works with this, I, this person who was actually dead the whole time. And at first you don't realize that then the whole movie is actually all about that 
he is actually dead the whole time. And every scene that plays out works with that in some kind of a way. Yeah, and the way that I saw him and his wife's like character, like his their story arc, is the way he perceives everything is that their marriage is falling apart. But the whole point of it is he's coming to terms with the fact that he has left her here on this earth just kind of helpless right. and almost abandoned and you know like there's they're always watching their wedding video which i always find to be kind of really touching sequences is you know he's talking about how much they love each other and he will like always love her until death do they part you know and essentially he's basically right. coming to terms with the fact he's living in a state of denial and he just the denial comes out as our like our relationship is falling apart we're losing connection with each other when in fact they completely have but he just doesn't realize it yet right right exactly so yeah it's it, i just i i think because at first when i first watched this movie i was like i did was kind of questionable about how this movie was made at least in terms of how the scenes play out because i'm just like yeah but they're kind of you know is it okay? My my biggest question when I first watched this movie, uh, no, knowing the twist, is you know, are these scenes? Do these scenes still work together, even though the twist exists here, or are they just kind of written in this way where they're forcing this twist to happen rather than letting it happen naturally? And at first, I'm just like, eh, the twist, eh, the the scenes just kind of feel as if they're more like made to be this way where they aren't exactly letting the audience kind of figure out what's going on until after they watch it. But when I've watched it a second time, I kind of realized, no, there's a great reason why these scenes are this way. That also kind of helps serve the twist there at the very end. Uh, and without that twist and without the uh, these scenes are made, I guess this movie would be kind of harder for the twist to really work or it would give it away too quickly. Yeah, I don't think I really have really any complaints with that like i said at first i was really worried this wouldn't work upon subsequent viewings it would just be like too obvious that it it just wouldn't make any sense but i believe malcolm says a few lines sometimes how because he's always making up excuses why he can't keep appointments or he's always late as he's like i just can't keep track of time anymore or i don't even remember um the exact places of where these events happened anymore like where with him and his wife's anniversary so i do think those sequences work and those explanations work one of the things i did find interesting is he's still able to interact with the world around him but only with when he's like extremely emotional like when he sees his wife and that man about to kiss he throws a rock at the shop window which that would really make us believe that uh, he is a real person. Um, he's not an apparition right. because he physically interacted with the world around him. But I think that's just because of um, that's just a part of the process of his redemption and coming to terms and kind of that anger is uh, physically um, it just permeated that way. Oh yeah, yeah. There, there are. Yeah, I think there were the only two moments where he actually interacts with some kind of physical object, and that's the rock when he goes out the window in the ring shop, and when he is scooting around the chair, which 
even then we don't really actually see the chair move. We just see kind of it's the camera is just on him and how he kind of slides over. And we do hear the the chairs of the sounds of the chair moving. But yeah, aside from really those two moments, there really isn't anything else that he interacts with in the world physically. Not even, and it's kind of hard to say, yeah, well, he has a notebook that has stuff in it, but that also may just be a part of, I guess, his spirit, because he also is wearing clothes. I don't really want to get into that. But yeah, there, aside from like a couple of moments where they're highly emotional, uh, yeah, nothing else here uh, he really interacts with. It, it does kind of subtly play with the rules that are in this world that I guess Cole is experiencing. Uh, where these souls are kind of trapped in purgatory, and very rarely do they ever interact with certain things. There are a few times where that does happen, but not very often. And if if even aside from, I think, I think aside from Malcolm, it may not happen at all with other, I guess, other apparitions that we see. An interesting dynamic between Cole and his mom that I did want to bring up is when Cole comes home from school, they both talk about their day, but it's completely made up. So they both yeah. indulge in escapism as a way to sweep life's problems under the rug. And I just find it very fascinating that Cole's mom wants him to like deal with these problems. Like she's like, you can't keep going on, you know, with these like kind of little psychotic temper tantrums. But then at the same time, she doesn't encourage him to face reality either. So the family dynamic between Cole and his mom is fairly intricate and well played out. And I was pretty impressed with the realism, I guess, of the dynamic between the two. Because I would say that, you know, parents don't always want to face the fact that maybe their kid does have a big problem. So they kind of want to just sweep it under the rug, which doesn't do the kid any favors, but nevertheless... A nice scene and good right. character building for both of them. Yeah, this definitely kind of lays out. I mean, we kind of already knew Cole's, I guess, life of where he was at already. But it does help us get into terms with where his mom is at, where she turns out she's kind of struggling for money. She has. To, we find out later she has two jobs. And so when she's talking to him, she goes, yeah, I won the lottery today. And kind of goes to play with your boy in opposite day. They're kind of hard for money on, at this point in their lives. It's kind of hard for them to survive. And I like that aspect that does only kind of subtly play into the story, but you do got to get this this sense that, yeah, life just totally isn't perfect for either of them. And we do find out that he, I believe his dad walked away from mm-hmm. uh, from the whole marriage because his, because uh, Cole was having all these psychotic issues. And the, it does kind of play a little bit with maybe his mom will leave too. There's a scene a little bit later where it's kind of hinted at yeah. that she might walk away from him too, but then she totally... Totally doesn't. And in the scene that happens right after that, we get a sense that, yeah, no, that she's never going to do that. It's interesting that they play with that. And, and it also kind of goes with Cole and his fears of his mom also leaving him because of these things that he's experiencing, which also would be why he hasn't told her what he's experiencing either, which is he can see dead people. You know, he only tells he, before this, I think he really only tells uh, Malcolm that he can see dead people. And it isn't until later when he's in the car with his mom that he does reveal that, oh yeah, this is what's going on with me. It's very interesting how they play up, play up with this. I really do enjoy how it's, uh, you can understand it, but at the same time, it's rather complex because it's not as simple as, as there's just a condition that I have to deal with, with my son. It's, I don't know what's wrong with him. And it's very hard for doctors to figure out what's wrong with him because he has more of a psychotic issue going on with him where he can see dead people walking around. It's interesting that they play up this, uh, this, how the mom tracks through, I guess both of them track through this relationship that they both try to have with each other. Uh, yeah, the theme of 
like parent-child relationships and even the theme of absent fathers or yeah. poor male role models is explored very well, I would say, in this. Because like you said, Cole and his mom have a loving relationship, but definitely a tentative one. Cole's dad walked out on him. Also, we know the same thing happened with Vincent Gray, and he felt like Malcolm failed him. And right. at one point, Malcolm does walk out on Cole, just like his dad did in it. That's a pretty hard scene because of how much trust they had built up between each other. Um, Cole trusted no one as much as he did Malcolm, and Malcolm right. leaves him. And then also, Cole's apparitions seem to center around not all of them, but a number of them do where, like, the woman, her husband beats her. Also, right. the guy, the one one kid briefly says, hey, let's go check out my dad's gun. And also, when they do find that little girl and you find out the mom poisoned her. And I, this is just um, playing off the theme that was set up in the very beginning of the the father figure or the male as protector of the family and then failing right to do so and coming to right. terms with um, how the father figure can fail, but there is redemption for him because Malcolm is coming to terms with how he failed to protect Anna and continue to be with her. And right. that father failed to protect his little girl from his psychotic wife. And the father failed to protect the son from apparently shooting himself in that one scene and Cole's dad failed him. So that arc of redemption where Malcolm is like, okay, I did fail a lot of people. I walked out on them, but I'm not going to fail you, Cole. That is a good redemption. And that whole that whole theme is explored really well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they do a really good job at uh, bringing forth this idea that uh, of uh, this idea that, you know, kind of, I guess, uh, not very good parents to their children. Yes. Because it kind of goes both ways. It does kind of focus more on the father and how he, how the father is a failure uh, in terms of keeping his kids in line and actually parenting instead of walking out on them. But then you also have that one scene there towards the end where they do focus heavily on it, where uh, he, where Cole finds out from uh, from a girl who just recently died, they find out that their mom poisoned her. So it kind of goes both ways. You know, the mom is supposed to be very caring and loving, and in this scene, she's totally not being that way. Uh, and then most of it, of course, is all focused towards the father, um, him not being, you know, the father he's supposed to be. And Malcolm also kind of fills this role, mostly with Cole, um, in the role that he probably should have, he just kind of realizes that he probably should have fulfilled when he was mess when he was helping out Vincent there at the beginning. Uh, did he should, that he's kind of playing up, putting on himself into this fatherly role. And that kind of becomes Cole's, I guess, uh, the way he, he become, becomes a character that Cole really looks up to especially there towards the end. So yeah, they do play a very, it is interesting that they bring in this focus towards, uh, fa I guess, parenting in general, but more so fatherhood and what it means to be a father in certain ways. It is also, it just, it also kind of, this movie just kind of in general reminds me a bit of Jacob's Ladder. And mm -hmm. I'm sure there was probably some kind of, uh, uh, of inspiration from that movie because they both are about a father. Well, I guess, Mark was Mark was really a father, technically speaking, a father because he is child psychology, but and how they kind of deal with the fact that this world around them and like this purgatory state. One of the other inspirations I saw for this movie was The Shining, because that is about the father son relationship where Danny can see things and then ultimately 
Jack becomes the thing that he fears the most. And I think that's kind of Cole's worry is will Malcolm be, will he help me? Because in the beginning he says, I was thinking you're nice, but you can't help me. And just real quick, I love that scene. I do love the scene where the mind reading game, where they kind of like really get to first meet each other. Oh, yeah. And he's like, take a step forward and a step back. That scene is so well done on like not just technically but the acting and how it's shot uh gets me into the movie oh, yeah. so quickly but also yeah. the shining is literally kind of manifested when uh tony collette sees the pictures in the hallway and they there is a shining glimmer next to cole and that seems to be a big right. motif in every movie where uh there's a ghost next to a child i know insidious ripped that off um, and I've just heard other stories where they take a picture and then all of a sudden you could see the ghosts in the background. This, this one's not as much, but I do think that is Shyamalan kind of paying some, um, homage to, uh, Stephen King, maybe taking some yeah. of that with the shining. Oh yeah. And I do want to talk about a little bit of color with this movie because there are two big uses of red and green that are mm-hmm. opposites of each other, by the way, on the color wheel. Um, they're complementary. Mm. And so what's interesting, I think the scene that really that really sticks out in my mind is the birthday party scene because you see a red balloon float to the top of the spiral staircase. Cole is wearing a red vest. So he goes up to, get, goes up to investigate and then a couple of uh, kids that one of them I think is, is actually birthday party. Mm-hmm. I believe it's actually Tommy. Um, him and another kid stuff him into, I guess it would be the dumbwaiter or something. This little closet that they have at the top of the stairs. And then his mom, who is wearing green, by the way, comes and saves him. It's a very interesting visual. Red is kind of tied in with uh, death in this movie. And then green is kind of the other way around, where it's more of uh, facing towards life, I suppose you could say. Uh, then you've all, of course, you've also got the red door handle in uh, Malcolm's house. That's right underneath mm-hmm. the stairs. And he never can get it. We never see him actually act- actively opening. Right in this movie. It's very interesting, the color of red. There's just a couple of instances, but it's all over the place in this movie. Those are the two colors that are primarily used in this film to express some kind of emotion or some kind of theme. Yeah, the color red is used as a catalyst for um, characters to figure out revelations or for events to happen to them, which do cause them to figure things out. And it is interesting because red is associated with death, but in a way, it's almost more so associated with life because the characters yeah. in the real world, like in the living characters, are always dressed so drab. And like there's a everybody's like dressed like they're ready for a funeral, it seems like half the time. But then right. when Cole does go and see the dead people, um, it's in order to release them from this world so they can i don't know go on to eternity i guess the movie doesn't really explore that aspect of it but the color red is a catalyst and it does contrast in a very interesting way with this seemingly dead world and this kind of world woven into ours yeah yeah it it, it kind of pulls from the jacob's ladder view of this man stuck in purgatory because he's holding on to his past life uh, this one takes it a bit more of a simple approach where it's Malcolm focusing and holding on to the failed uh, case that he had with Vincent. And I was going to redeem himself with that. Whereas uh, where Jacob's ladder is more of him holding on to almost everything in his life because he feels like he, he feels as if he's died too early. So 
aside from that, yeah, I the colors in this movie I think are one of the more important aspects because especially in this scene with the birthday party, it kind of is this I guess you could say yin and yang of life and death between the two colors and how they're mm-hmm. expressed. Uh, at least throughout this whole movie. Ray could also, I guess, be kind of a visual towards the color of blood because there is a lot of... Because we do see a lot of, black, a lot of that in terms of death in this movie, like when Malcolm is shot and then you see the blood kind of swimming out onto the yeah. bed sheets. Uh, or that one kid that kind of walks through his house where he, where he clearly shot himself in the head um, and he says, hey, let's go check out my dad's gun. So I wonder if that's kind of where it's more focused towards is death in terms of the color of blood, maybe... Uh, who knows? There are probably th- three or four different readings you can get from it. The locked door with the red door handle um, made yeah. me think of an Argento style mystery. Yeah. Where, yeah. you know, you kind of Absolutely. wonder what's behind the blue iris. Except this was kind of a red crystal doorknob. So I, I thought that was a nice touch. Um, one of the scenes in this movie that is kind of dumb and is kind of beneath the storytelling here is when Malcolm is in his basement. And he's he circles this section in a book that says, quote, a doctor must be aware a child may inflict his own bruises and abrasions. You're telling me he just learned this? To me, this most likely seems for yeah. the audience's benefit, but one of the kind yeah. of rookie storytelling mistakes is over-explaining to the audience. Yeah, that's kind of one of my bigger issues with this movie kind of in general is it does kind of over explain a few things like this is a redemption story. And he meant and Malcolm mentions more than one time that the other cases are so similar when he compares uh, when he compares Cole's and Vincent's uh, case files. That's one of the things I didn't really like is that it doesn't. It's not that it not that it doesn't leave room for interpretation because it is, I would say, subtle enough that you could probably find another reading about it. But it is also not it is also not very not very subtle with how it presents uh, really any kind of ass any kind of information in this movie. It's it's very much uh, pretty pointed, I guess I could say, it, just kind of in general with everything that it does. That's just not one thing I wish they would have done is made it a bit more subtle. Uh, that way, you I guess could get more than one reading out of it, maybe, or you could feel something different. Who knows? I just found that to be one of the things I didn't really like too much about it. One of the other small nitpicks that I did have was we do get at least one jump scare in this movie. I thought, really? That's yeah. kind of that's kind of blow you. It's so it's really that really uncomfortable scene where we're watching Cole P from behind and then somebody walks by real quick and we get the music and the jump and I, I didn't like that. Yeah, I mean to be fair though, at least this movie doesn't do anything else with jump scares other than this one scene. And I I believe this is the first time we do see one of the apparitions, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. That's the first uh, time. So, yeah, okay, that's right. So, it doesn't bother me too much because it's kind of making it all kind of spooky, you know, because uh, you just see apparitions and we're now getting to see what those apparitions look like. So, I didn't bother me too much. Um, they did a jump scare. There are times where I think jump scares do work and... This one, I would say, works for me, but there are plenty of other times where jump scares are way overutilized for a movie, uh, mostly using horror. Uh, So, yeah, that didn't bother me too much, uh, being that it was really the one and only time, and it does help set up that this is the first time we're seeing these apparitions, these souls trapped in this purgatory. So, yeah, that didn't bother me too much. Did you notice the uh, Shyamalan cameo? Yep, he was the doctor. doctor. 
telling her, telling mom that, yeah, we don't know what's <laughs> wrong with your kid. Uh, except we think that it's your fault. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting, too, that they have that, like, in doctor's offices, they have that little, like, uh, I don't even know how to explain it, that, like, track yeah. where you can take the beads and yeah. roll it around the track. The children's toy. Uh, I haven't seen one of those mm-hmm. in a while. So that, that was interesting that they had that between them. Um, I mean, I mean, it makes sense, but still. Yeah, it was good. It felt a little like they were being a, maybe a little on the nose with some of those shots right there where it, it almost yeah, felt maybe. a little too artistic that it was just a bit unnecessary. Uh, yeah, that this is one of those points where I think that they may be over-explaining yeah. things, uh, at least in terms of visuals here. It, for me, it's not that big of a deal, but it is something that is there. So, so. in Shyamalan fashion... He is continuing the trend of bringing in either religion or most specifically Christianity in some form. As we know, with Praying with Anger, it was him yep. dealing with the Hindu upbringing side. Wide Awake was his Catholic upbringing. And with this, um, Christianity does play a role, but one that I feel is not as explored as much as it probably should be if they're going to bring it up this much because they meet in a church twice i think possibly three times and sanctuary that is an old term meaning for somebody who is seeking refuge they would go to the sanctuary where the authorities couldn't come in there and get them or they would have some kind of protection from the outside world so i mean i think that's a really nice aspect of having cole go in there but he also has this little tent or almost this little shrine that he filled with christian figures such as Joseph and Mary and Jesus, which I'm assuming he is saying he wants his like he wants like this uh, spiritual protection from these apparitions. But I guess what I'm supposed to get out of it is the reason he's not being protected from them is because I guess God has given him this gift to use to find these people. Um, because when he is hiding in there, one of the apparitions comes in there, and so it kind of almost seems like a sign, right? that he's meant to see this and not run away from what he perceives as a problem. Right. Yeah. Th- it's, it's kind of cryptic with how it's uh, talking about religion here. And in some aspect, I wonder if uh, he was trying to avoid some of the topics that, uh, that I guess you could really easily get into with life and death um, with this kind of a story, because it is there. It is definitely an important part of the story, but he also doesn't not linger on it very much. Uh, I guess than he has before in the past. Those last two movies, not that much at all. So yeah, it is it is weird. It's kind of hard to really pinpoint what he's trying to say with some of these scenes when they're t- when he's at least when they're referencing some kind of religion here. It's hard to say what he's really going for aside from that. Usually in horror movies, uh, the I guess the souls have some kind of connection with religion. Uh, just kind of in general with horror movies. Yeah, I guess my only complaint is if you're going to bring it up in such a way, then you probably should make some kind of statement about it or give us some conclusion as to right. either Cole's thought process for doing it and why it doesn't work the way he wants it to work. I don't need some rote explanation, but eh, right. I just don't think I really liked him bringing it up in such a way and then just kind of dropping it. Yep. I can probably see it being more of a symbol of uh, of safety. I mean, they do kind of talk about that and how people would claim sanctuary when they go in there so they wouldn't get arrested. 
Uh, and we do know that Cole is kind of big. He thinks at the beginning he's being haunted by these apparitions when in reality they're seeking help because they're trapped. So my guess, and especially when he brings all he, he brings all those figurines and statues back to his house and puts them up in his tent, he's, he's kind of making his own makeshift sanctuary uh, aside from that one scene when the girl enters the tent. But yeah, that's that's really the only thing that they're saying about it. Other than that, it's kind of put on the back burner. They're focusing on, uh, I guess, they're focusing more on the character of Malcolm than and his dealing and how what he do what he's doing with than they are with the topic of religion here. And as far as it goes with, you know, spirits still being on the world because they have unfinished business left to do, that is nothing new. We yeah. have heard that quite a bit in stories and movies. or Yeah, we talked about that with Jacob's Ladder. So, right. I mean, <laughs> this isn't the first time we talked about it either. Yes, and um, yeah, very much so in Jacob's Ladder. And also, I think even people, some people believe that to be the case as to if a ghost exists, then it still has some unfulfilled purpose left in life. I've just heard that a lot. Right. So that right. whole premise is really nothing new. But at least Shyamalan packages it and presents it in a, a more so fresh way, and it's it's told fairly well. And I would say the character dynamics are really what we're here for. They're so the yeah. the chemistry between um, Bruce Willis and Haley Joel Osment they work together so well. They are oh, such yeah. a great yeah, duo. Right. Yeah. This is this is very much focused on the individual with. Uh, you know, Malcolm's coming to terms with his death and how what he needs to do before he accepts the fact that he is actually dead. That's what the whole movie is about, uh, at least in terms of his character. So, I mean, it makes sense that they're doing this kind of a story because there is still a lesson to be learned here, not just spooky for being spooky. They're, it's spooky, but they uh, at the end of the day, it still has a very good ending, a very, mm-hmm. like, uh, I, I guess you could say, very heartwarming ending and fulfilling ending. Yes. Whereas uh, you could make it all spooky like a lot of other horror movies do. It's kind of hard for me to call this really a horror movie. I would consider it more of a thriller uh, than a horror movie because although it does have horror elements to it, that's not its sole purpose. It's closer to a a, thr- a thriller or a drama that has some spooky elements to it than a full-on horror movie. But still, the the whole point of this movie is, I guess you could say, more of a character study than it is uh, than it is trying to scare the audience. Yeah, the mix of genres is played out really well because, yes, it is a drama, but I do. There are a number of horror elements to it, and there are also a lot of thrilling elements to it as well. So, blending those genres together into one cohesive film, he does a great job because this is still very horrifying in many aspects. And one of the other memorable scenes that I have from this movie is um Kara is when he goes to her home for her funeral and she gives him the VHS tape and she was playing with puppets yeah. and then the camera step kept going and you see the mom put like I don't know what it is strychnine or something which is rat poison and um that scene is so dark on top of extremely oh, yeah. other dark scenes that we've already seen I mean, this movie really can't go much darker, and it's here towards the end, and nor so does Shyamalan want to put the focus on um, tragedy in this movie, but more so the redemption that can be found, or the justice that can be found 
through all of this, yep. but gosh, I just forgot how dark this movie is, which makes some of it really hard to watch, especially this whole sequence where oh, yeah. we get this really, we get this head on shot, which you usually don't ever see head on shot of the dad watching the tape as he's crying while everybody else is watching. I mean, yeah, this scene is pretty, pretty heavy. Yeah, this scene is very heavy. This is probably the darkest scene that is mm-hmm. in this movie is when is this realization that the mom was poisoning the kid the whole time. Uh, it doesn't really ever explain the reason behind it. We don't really need a reason behind it. It's more focused on the redemption aspect and how the mom is going to seek. And the mom is now going to have to face justice for what she's done. Uh, that's more of what it's focused towards. Uh, here and really this whole movie is people coming to terms with what's really happened we never really there are a few like the kid who walked we can kind of pick up hints of what happened uh to these kids like the kid that walked in with the with the blood on his head we can kind of figure that maybe he shot himself or yeah kira she is throwing up so she was probably poisoned by something we find out later was was her mom it's kind of interesting that we find out what happened to these souls that were trapped without the movie really without the movie really fully explaining things we kind of get a visual and we can kind of figure out from there what happened uh to them another example would be the old lady in the kitchen that has marks in her arms and she yells to her husband uh we kind of figure out that her husband probably did something to her that killed her i like this aspect that we can kind of figure out for ourselves what really happened to these souls and this is one of the few times one of the only ones outside of malcolm that actually has uh some justification and some kind of redemption arc to it that does help serve the story, mind you. It's also not one. It's just kind of uh, showing how Cole is figuring out what he really, what do you really, well, I guess what his purpose is for having this kind of uh, psychic ability, more or less, is able to help these souls out. This was when he it shows the good and what he has. And once again, this scene specifically deals with a child that has been dreadfully wronged by a parent. So I think yeah. if they yeah. they got a limited amount of time to choose what Cole with his gift that he finally finds out. So this was the right one to do. Now, it just turns out to be yes. the dark, but how can it really not be when you're dealing with a child yeah. in a tragic circumstance? It just makes it all the more worse when it's with a parent. But nevertheless, it was a good choice. Also, I don't know why, but I can't. I always think of The Ring when I see this scene, probably because it deals with a VHS tape and um kind of a somber uh, funeral yes. sequence which we kind of have towards the beginning of that film so they really have nothing to do with each right. other except for the, my recollection of that <laughs> um one other compliment i did want to give right. to this movie right. and especially here towards the end where cole tells his mom his secret and she finally believes him um because he tells him about how he grandma comes to him and the whole reason grandma does is because she doesn't want ah yes um her daughter to be sad anymore Shyamalan and Fujimoto do a marvelous right. job of setting up these static shots filled with so much reflective emotions you just don't really see this anymore unfortunately you don't see many movies with this much yeah. uh this many static shots and the static shots do uh immense favors to drawing us into the scene but then also just letting us sit with all the emotions that the characters are feeling so it really oh, does yeah. place us within the context of it yeah it's, it's also just very interesting because here he Shyamalan kind of breaks the 180 rule because usually when you have a character two characters mm-hmm. having a conversation you have one on one side of the screen and then the other character that they're talking to on the opposite side of the screen right 
In this movie, they're both on the exact same side of the frame, which usually you don't want to do. And this was a very good reason why. And I would say here is a really good reason. He has a really good reason why, not because they're in a car, but because he. (laughs) It also kind of shows that uh, Cole is getting on to the same level as his mom when they're coming to some kind of understanding. And Mm -hmm. I guess you could say they're in parallel. Uh, with how with how they understand each other, and this is yes. the one scene that I, for some reason, remembered the most about is this one scene where you have mm-hmm. Cole explaining to his mom what exactly is going on, uh, and he co- finally comes clean to her. And this scene, yeah, this scene is one of the most emotional ones in this movie. And this week also kind of has a roller coaster of emotions to it. But this is the one scene that, for whatever reason, I remember the most of. Uh, is this one scene when he talks to his mom and yeah his mom does a really good job here with uh, with mm. coming to terms with his with finding out her kid does have this whatever is going on with him this I guess the psychic psychic ability which is what causes him to have these episodes yeah that is a really good point that you brought up about how they are on the same level now with their understanding because they have always been off because i mean it, it makes sense because cole has never been very believable but first of all he's a child and child yeah. children do make up things and he has had some um kind of duff, difficult sequences to deal with in his life but i do think the shot like you said also serves to show that um her world has opened up farther now just as his yeah. world did um and I think that showcased really well with that shot because we do see Cole and the dead bicyclist. He said somebody died and you see the dead bicyclist standing right there and his shot right. is more so open and her shot is closed. But then, you know, like you said, that 180 rule, her her world is much more open, leaving to the fact that there is more than meets the eye. It, great shot. Right. Great scene. Also, does kind of help explain why her window is open and his is closed. I <laughs> just wanted to point mm-hmm. that out. But I do kind of want to go back to a scene real quick. Be right, is actually right before this. Uh, it's the play scene when uh, he is actually talking. It begins with him talking to another apparition who, was, who died in the fire. And then Mr. Cunningham kind of helps lead him out towards the stage. And it's the play of King Arthur. Oh. I found that to be very interesting that uh, they decided to have the play centered around King Arthur and not only centered around that, but also make a point that it's in this movie because King Arthur is a play that's really about how those who have a pure spirit or a pure mind will be the ones who get you get the farthest and get the riches, mm-hmm. right? Which is exactly the reason why he pulls the sword from the stone is because King Arthur uh, has is pure in spirit. And so it's interesting that they bring this up and it's uh, Cole who does this and then he gets to kind of live out his dream of his classmates raising him up and I guess praising him like he had mentioned to his mom earlier in the movie. Yeah, it, it is a sweet moment. And you also get the bully who we didn't mention, but the bully yeah. gets his comeuppance as well. He's well, he's like silence peasant or something. So yeah. That, that yeah. role reversal is nice. And it does. I, right. I do think that's important to um, give us not forget the small picture as well. Because there is a big picture being played out in everyone's life, but then you have to kind of ground right. it and bring it back down and show, well, how how is this working in Cole's life? How is this affecting him? Because earlier that teacher yelled at him and scared him, and now this teacher is being positive towards him. 
the bully, you know, he just, everybody thinks he's a freak, he's treated horribly, and then to see him raised up, that does um, also complete that social side of Cole's arc as well in a good right. scene. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So Shyamalan does yeah. a good job of really tying the bow, wrapping everything up on these story arcs that he did bring up because Cole right. at school is kind of a major element to the plot throughout the the first act and then even part of the second act as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, we do kind of get the wrap up between uh, Cole and Malcolm here. He says, why don't you try talking to your wife when she's asleep and try and communicate with her. And then that's pretty much the last thing we have with Malcolm and Cole is this mm-hmm. last piece of advice that he gives him. And then the scene with the mom in the traffic jam. And then we have the scene when uh, we get the twist, which is that Cole's or Malcolm is dead the whole time. And I do think it's important that they end their arcs separately, which yeah. is an interesting choice considering these are our two protagonists and usually protagonist arcs are always wrapped up together in movies, not separately, but they are their own distinct individuals with their own problems that they have to deal with. And right. it is a unique thing because we almost get two kind of like two resolutions. There's almost, I guess, two endings to this film. And it's good that um, Cole's endings come first because nevertheless he is a secondary character and our main character is Malcolm, who we began the movie with. And so his arc is wrapped up as well. So those two endings work really well because honestly the film could have ended with Cole, but we still needed to wrap up with um, Malcolm. So I I thought that was pretty cool he was able to achieve two endings and... Also, he doesn't really linger too long. We're, we're really faced with the revelation, and then we just um, we come to terms with it just as quickly as um, Malcolm does because we realize that's what the whole movie has been about. Right. Yeah, he has one more thing he needs to let go of, and that's that the fact that he is dead, and he needs to come to terms with, yeah, he's dead, and he needs to let go. And that's when he finds out uh, through, uh, for the, through his wife, Anna, that, oh, yeah, you were you died. Why did you leave me? And then we see him drop. We see her drop the wedding ring. That was his wedding ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and we find out, which I actually forgotten about, that he didn't wear his ring the whole movie when he is mm-hmm. like this. When he's actually trapped in this purgatory, I forgot that, and so I didn't actively look for it. But now that I think back, yeah, I guess that's true because it does kind of play a couple of scenes where, he, like the dinner scene, he puts his hand on the table and his ring is just not there. So, anyways, yeah, that's when he comes to the revelation that crap i'm actually dead the whole time and then it goes back to where we left off at the beginning with him lying on the bed and we see his last breath before he uh before the end of the movie and it's it's it's, it's a very interesting very interesting twist this is one of the considered to be one of the greatest twists of all time is the fact that he was dead the whole movie yeah and it's a great twist and that is something Shyamalan would go on to be known for is putting in some sort of twist at the end of yeah. every movie. Yeah. This yeah, this becomes a director's staple is the twist that changes everything that you that you once knew about the movie beforehand. Yeah, I think I brought up there was like a twist in Wide Awake or something. It wasn't oh, really yeah. a twist because I know you're like, that's not really a twist, Corvin. And I'm like, well, yeah. it's a Shyamalan twist, so I'm going with it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I remember um, that. We could also bring up that we realized Malcolm was never in the basement, even though we get shots of him in what we assumed was the basement. I mean, he was looking out of a window from underneath his house, Right. but we could, I guess, view that more so 
like Alan's brought up throughout the podcast, purgatory, or possibly the recesses of his mind, some other worldly segment where he is able to peer out at the world. Um, and it's also introspective because that's where he does find the files, you know, his mind right. files and um, uncur un uncover further revelations that he was neighbor never able to in life, but because in the spirit realm, he's able to access those on a deeper level. So yeah. I do like that Shyamalan. I, I don't think it was really necessary to have the basement be a closed off section like, oh, he never went down inside the basement. I, right. I mean, I still think it works, though. It's it's a nice touch. Yeah, it is also interesting to also bring up the fact that the bedroom is upstairs, and then the regular basement is on the opposite level. It's downstairs. Yes, could be a, a visualization, at least in terms of the house of heaven and hell. Doesn't really ever go that far. Don't don't get me wrong. But yeah, the the basement part I think is interesting. That also kind of shows that yeah yeah he couldn't open it because. Uh, he was dead the whole time. We never get to see him go into the basement. You know, we see him maybe pull out a key or I think one time, but that's really about as far as it goes. So, yeah, it is interesting that they bring up this red door. I think it also, once again, red is the color that is associated with death in this movie. So it makes sense that he would try and open it uh, with the red doorknob. Yeah. And I guess the more I think about it, the opening shot is in the basement. Yeah. With the yeah, wife. That's right, because yeah, the light comes on, yeah, and the, and the wife is down there with the getting some wine. That's right. And it is odd because that basement that they have, I'm sure it's bigger than what we realize, but he has like an office set up down there with like a desk and books and stuff, but we never saw that um, in the opening yeah. shot. It was mostly kind of a wine cellar. There may have been some back section to it we weren't aware of, right. but nevertheless, starting the film off there... And it's kind of a creepy atmosphere, and then supposedly he goes down there to work. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an okay connection. It's it's pretty interesting. I would also, I guess, we could bring bring this up now. The opening shot is a light bulb coming on. It's just kind of a visualization of coming uh, coming to a realization of something. Mm. Uh, that's typically what the turning on a light bulb means, especially when we're close up on the light bulb and it kind of slowly turns on. Um, mm. so loose fades in from black and then the movie also kind of fades out to black kind of mm -hmm. this, this soul kind of coming to terms with that he is actually dead and then eventually dying and that's about it for the journey that we see so yeah I'm sure that that's what the whole connection there is from my mind at least oh wow yeah I, I didn't even think about that or realize that I'll have to go back and check out the opening again that's a really good point is kind yeah. of that illumination of the events that are about to unfold yeah I, I've I've come to find out that the opening shots and opening scenes are the most important in the movie because they set up everything that is about to happen afterwards. Yeah. So oftentimes you can find everything you need to know about what the movie's going to be about in sometimes the opening shot and sometimes the opening scene, but it may not be you may not be realized until after you finish the movie. Mm, oh. Uh, the one thing that didn't make any sense is when Malcolm and his wife were talking. And he said, you were never second, ever. When did she feel she was second? I don't, that line didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it, they never really explore that at all, if she ever felt that she was second. um, It probably mm. could be something that uh, she's thinking in her mind because it was his job that killed him. Uh, mm. a, the, the kid of, the Vincent kid is the one who did do the job of, of shooting him. So my guess is 
that may have been where that thought came into. But yeah, other yeah. than that, they really never talk about how he puts his job over anybody else. That could just be something that she uh, ended up coming to terms with on her own by accident, uh, mm. just because of the events that happened, maybe. Well, yeah, that's a good point. I, I didn't think about that. That is a good point. Yep. Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for The Sixth Sense? The Sixth Sense is one of those movies where everything that's in the everything that's, that you see, everything that happens, everything that's written has some kind of great purpose to the story. And I really enjoy movies like this where nothing is wasted. There is no wasted time that we have. Now, this movie may over explain a few things and there are some scenes like the scene when the mom sees pictures of Cole and the light next to him or other scenes where they do kind of over explain elements that, uh, oh, I don't know, Cole can see dead people or something like that. They feel like that they may be over explained a few times. But aside from that, once again, everything this movie doesn't not work. Everything this movie has a greater purpose to it. And I really enjoy movies that don't waste any time. And that upon upon subsequent viewings, you can find more and more details that connect to the overall story. I still have some criticisms, as I mentioned earlier. But at the same time, this is still one that I would like to return to and watch again. Although I do find some of it to kind of be a little bit dragging, especially there towards the end. Because it is slowly paced. And when I first, when I watched it the second time, I was like, oh my gosh, this movie is actually kind of boring uh, there, at least for a good 45 minutes. But looking at it now, I can see it's, I'm not as bored by it nearly as much as I was the second time I watched it. So anyways, that all being said, uh, I'm between eight and nine with this one. I'm probably going to go nine with a pretty strong recommend. Uh, I'm very impressed with what Shyamalan is able to turn around from at least from his last two movies. Uh, so anyways, yeah, eight, nine out of 10 with a, with a pretty strong recommend for me. M night Shyamalan's the sixth sense is a film not to be reckoned with and an incredibly impressive third outing from a director who established himself as a quasi mediocre guy from his first two films. Shyamalan with the aid of other great talent creates a moody, depressing atmosphere of terror that strikes straight to our core fears that of being misunderstood and feeling out of place in this world. With powerhouse performances, captivating shots, and an ever-so-unsettling score, this is a solid film. Not only that, but the level of terror this film evokes and the truly depressing nature makes this a great horror film. From the harrowing opening sequence to the phenomenal twist ending, The Sixth Sense is one of the greatest films of the 2000s. I'm giving it 8 stars out of 10 with a strong recommend. Now, like Alan mentioned, I do have just a couple few complaints that we had talked about throughout this podcast, but there were actually a few shots that I felt were very needless, such as when Malcolm, um, after, after Cole is yelled at by the stuttering Stanley, and then Malcolm teaches him the penny trick, and then the penny trick comes back up at the birthday party, all of that felt pointless to me. I guess they're yeah. trying to establish character relatability. It just felt waste of time yeah. yeah well listeners we are finally back with Shyamalan um yeah, but for at least one more week and then we for, move on to something else for one more week yeah we're yeah. um we're we don't want to give you just a overload of Shyamalan we want to give you a variety of different films and genres so we hope you enjoyed our um, previous two reviews which are out now 
Pet Cemetery and The Road Warrior, which is a part of our Mad Max series, which will we will be coming to in two weeks. So next week, look for Unbreakable, um, Shyamalan's next film that also starred Bruce Willis, and which, uh, surprise, is the first installment in a trilogy nobody really knew was going to happen. Yep. Okay, anyways, we'll talk about that later on. But then after Unbreakable, we will be getting back to Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I'm excited to watch that. It is on its way right now for Alan and I to watch. And Mad Max Fury Road, we will be wrapping that up. And then we will be returning back to Shyamalan for just a bit before we will be coming into the Men in Black retrospective series, which will lead up to... This summer's blockbuster, supposedly, release of Men in Black International. So, Alan, thank you so much for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we've got tons of great reviews coming, like we said, and even more than that planned out on the schedule. So you will not want to miss all of the exciting reviews we have in store. So go ahead. If you haven't already done it, click subscribe right now. Also, subscribe to us through our social media platform so you never miss a beat. If you go to our website, you can subscribe through email, so you can check that out every Friday while you eat lunch. That's when it comes out. Also, if you do want to support this podcast, if you like what you heard, then go ahead and share it with your friends and family. And then also consider giving us a small donation for the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee. You get a lot of great content that's yours to keep. The Starbucks coffee is gone. This content is there for you to enjoy forever. You can download it to your computer. We will have all kinds of stuff waiting for you at our Patreon page. That's in the link in the description. Very easy to see. We've got movie commentaries. We have Q&As. We have our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers. So everything you could want, you can go deeper, and it helps us keep the lights on. That money doesn't go into our pocket for us to go buy uh, the Star Wars Mega Pack collection at Best Buy that is for us to host this podcast for the bandwidth for the storage to keep everything nice and running and free for you listeners. So we want to say thank you for your continued support. Uh, make sure to go check out that page and support us. It really does help. And if you just can't uh, donate any money at the time, we understand, but what does help us is um, getting up there in the rankings so other people can hear about our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So wherever you're at, especially on iTunes, that's a really big one, is if you leave us a five-star review, that will help us increase in the rankings so other people can find our podcast as well. So once again, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next week with Unbreakable.